Greetings and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that looks at my handpicked stories from InfoSec and technology and why they matter. Put out the show in two forms, the podcast, which you're listening to now, and the companion newsletter, which has all the stories, notes, and links for each topic. You can subscribe to the newsletter at danielmeisler.com newsletter. All right, welcome to episode 50. Going to start with information security news. So a uh, big vulnerability in Linux came out last week. Uh, it's called Dirty Cow. Uh, and of course, there's a website with a dirty cow on it uh, talking about the vuln. Still kind of torn on how good or bad that is. It, for some reason, having a website that breaks it down and makes it clear, I think is okay. I, I just hate when marketing groups get uh, a hold of that concept and take it too far. But Anyway, there's a website for it. Basically, the way that it works, it's a privilege escalation vulnerability in Linux, which means lower users can become root. Uh, well, privilege escalation actually just means you go higher, but in this case, it means root. Um, so basically, what, what it is, is there's kind of a multi-stage process in writing files. Um, there's a, a cache uh, step that takes place and then there's the writing of the file and there's actually a race condition which allows you to confuse the system into writing into root protected files when you're not root um, also has to do with writing to protected memory um, which again is part of that caching piece so it's a uh, it's a race condition and uh, it's evidently pretty easy to exploit and it's pretty nasty so uh should definitely be patching that if you haven't already. Uh, it's now possible to use Rowhammer to root Android phones. So Rowhammer was this really sick uh, attack where you can affect content in protected memory belonging to other systems. So this was, uh, I believe this is the same vuln as the one that was uh, writing in memory across different VMware guests. So you're inside of one guest and you write to another guest memory. Um, might be confusing it, but it's very similar if I am. Um, but basically what you could do now is you could do a similar thing where you're writing to uh, supposedly protected memory from one application to another. And you can actually root uh, Android phones. Bunch of different phones are affected. Uh, LG, Samsung, and Motorola, and potentially millions of, of devices. Uh, so uh, patch early, patch often. The Mirai botnet, this is the big story of last week, uh, took down most of the internet, or not most of the internet, lots of the internet, a good portion, a lot of big sites, Twitter, Reddit, uh, little shops like that you've probably never heard of. Uh, scariest part is it looked like kind of like a test. Um, a lot of people are saying this is like 10% of its potential. Um, I made the joke on Twitter that's like Putin is like test, test, one, two, three, test, one, two, three. Um, I've, I've got this theory that like the whole, it's all Russia related. Um, it, it's really not even a theory. It's just kind of fun thoughts, but, uh, I mean, Russia's definitely involved in the election hacking. They're definitely, I mean, they're spamming the hell out of RT and uh, 
the WikiLeaks stuff is all Russia related. Um, <laughs> I did another tweet basically saying, look, Occam's Corner, okay, right? Occam's Corner. So uh, either Russia is um, directly affecting WikiLeaks and trying to get Trump elected, or all these same hackers looked for stuff on both Clinton and Trump, but only found Clinton stuff. They just looked for Trump stuff. They just couldn't find any. What are the chances of that? So Occam thinks that's a dumb idea. Uh, so yeah, really interesting stuff. Um, the botnet is just massive. <laughs> uh, it, it melted Dyn DNS with supposedly 10% of its capability. And no one knows for sure how big it is, but there's some reports that uh, like 10 million devices could be in this thing. Um, and, and that's changing all the time, right? They're, they're fighting for turf. They're compromising more systems. Um, but just fascinating stuff. My current theory, and this is not related to the story, well, kind of, um, my current theory is that election day we're going to see some massive outages. And when the results come back and it's like potentially a major landslide for Clinton, Trump and Putin and RT and WikiLeaks will just be like, oh, well, what do you know? Right. We we've got a landslide for Clinton and uh, we got a bunch of outages. Looks like they hacked the election. Um and I think a lot of people will be willing to believe that because, because they just don't like Clinton. So I think this is information warfare at its best. Um, now, you can't just group every single crazy or cool thing into this theory, right? That's why it's not an actual theory. I'm not going to read every item of news and be like, look what Putin did. Um, but I, I think there is potential that uh, a number of these things could be related. Okay, this is nasty. Google has silently dropped its internal ban on personally tracking you through the services that you use of theirs and linking that directly with ads. So they bought DoubleClick a number of years ago and they had in their terms of service, they said, look, we will never use this to um, combine the tracking of your emails and the other services that you use with us search for most importantly, search and email, right? We will never combine search and email queries with what we send you in ads. And they had it very explicitly written there. And that was their defense at the time. And a lot of people were like, well, at least they, you know, gave it lip service or whatever. So they've just removed that language. That is no longer there. They are now explicitly saying, or I guess it's implicit, um, they are now saying, yes, we will link these two and, you know, you'll get better ads or whatever the, the reason is going to be. But it's, it's scary for, to me, Google is scary. They're also awesome, right? They're doing driverless cars and trying to solve, you know, cancer and aging and it, they're, they're amazing. No question there, but Google just like people are multiple things. And there's this part of Google that is scary as crap. Um, 
And it just became a lot more so with this combination of ads and services, which if you know my stuff, I mean, I've been saying this forever. Like you, you are, if, if you're using Android, I mean, they didn't come up with Android because they're like, Hey, I really want to have an amazing mobile experience. They're like, Hey, we need to get ads into people's hands. I mean, that's how it started. That's what Android is. It is an ad platform on a mobile device, right? So we shouldn't be surprised by this kind of stuff, but it's it's interesting to see it play out. Okay, more people are calling for AI watchdog groups. So Stephen uh, Hawking basically came out and said, uh, AI might be the last thing that humans ever make. Um, and he had better words for it. I think he was like, Are, the last human invention or something like that. Uh, and then you got people like uh, Nick Bostrom, who uh, who I heard on a bunch of podcasts and uh, I haven't read his book yet, but it's in my queue uh, on super intelligence. And he basically runs this institute out of Oxford and, with satellites in like the Bay Area um, talking about we need to watch the competition between AI. So if all these Silicon Valley and China and everyone else is competing against each other to get to AI the fastest, then we're just going to invent it. We're going to enable it so we can win the competition and like win TechCrunch disrupt, right? And meanwhile, it's planning our demise. Um, so he's seriously worried about this. So is uh, Sam Harris, who just did a TED Talk on it. And uh, it's very, very serious. And I have it in the InfoSec um, news section only because it might kill the entire world. So I, I thought that was worth being in InfoSec instead of technology. Um, but definitely go check out the link. I'm not sure what it linked to, but it was something related to this. Oh, actually, it's Nick Bostrom's Institute. That's what you should check out the link for. Um, all right, technology news. Microsoft's bet on cloud massively pays off. So the, the stock is as high as it's ever been. So CEO Satya Nadella, just absolutely crushing it. Uh, basically came in, completely changed direction off of what uh, Ballmer was doing. And it's, it's absolutely paying off. Um, next story, Surface sales up 38%. Um, much smaller business than iPad, but growing much faster. So Surface is killing it. Azure is killing it. Highest stock price ever. Um, yeah, they're just doing absolutely fantastic. And, and uh, the new CEO is, is uh, definitely kicking ass. China overtakes US in the iOS app store revenue for the first time. Spent $1.7 in Q3 of 2017 which is a uh, 15% more than the U S spent. So China is like the place to be. They're beating us in mobile. They're meeting, beating us in AI powered chatbots for e-commerce. Um, they're now buying more apps in the app store, which is not necessarily leadership, but it just shows how large the market is and how important it is. Salesforce is moving into artificial intelligence with a project called Einstein. This is a really cool approach. So basically, they, they see that the problem with Salesforce is people not entering data into it, right? They're not, they don't take the time. There's too much friction, whatever the reason. 
Um, so what they're going to do is they're going to use AI to automatically enter data in and then use AI to, to actually prompt you and say what you should do next for this account. I think this is absolutely amazing. This is exactly what AI should be doing. You find the pain point that's causing the obstacle in whatever human workflow you have and focus AI on that problem and getting stuff into Salesforce and then getting it through the next stages. Those are exactly what need to be done. So can't wait to see how that works. Uh, Tim Cook is still all about some VR uh, without saying what Apple is going to do for it. I, I don't get it. He, he gave uh, a couple of talks recently um, or interviews or whatever, basically saying, you know, VR is the future. Uh, imagine having a virtual meeting where we're all sitting on the beach or whatever. Um, and my question is, is still the same as it has been. Where where is Apple in this? I, I don't understand what they're going to do. Apple is all about clean interface, simple design. You know, you don't see the technology as much or whatever. You have the AirPods are trying to be kind of subtle. Um, how do you get subtle with a VR pair of glasses or a VR headset? Um, and Apple's all about the lifestyle management, right? So it, it's all about being out on the subway and you're going to work and you're going jogging. I mean, are you going to have this giant piece of headgear? I, I just don't understand how Apple is getting into the space. I have no doubt they, they will, but I'm just very curious how why they're talking about it so much without a clear way to get into it. Um, of course, they know things that I don't, so maybe there is a clear way and it's amazing and they haven't told us yet, but I, I don't see how they're going to have this super like subtle amazing VR interface when everyone else is a giant football helmet. All right, Zwift, Z-W-I-F-T, is merging indoor fitness with MMORPGs. Currently I have like 170,000 accounts, two and a half million rides, 45 million miles ridden. Average ride is evidently like an hour and Mark Zuckerberg just uh, talked about it last month. Uh, the interface looks super cool, but you're basically riding with others and competing with others while you're on your stationary bike. Um, really cool stuff. I, I wish they had it for rowing. Um, I'd love a lot to lose at that. All right. Human news. Facebook looking at relaxing its filtering for content that could have been offensive to some people. They're talking about allowing more nudity and more violence as long as the story is interesting um, and newsworthy. This is problematic for me. I, first of all, I don't know why they were stopping interesting stories just because they had nudity or violence. That, that's a problem. I'm glad they're fixing that. But I'm more interested in ideas. What, what about ideas that could be deemed as subversive or controversial like uh, you know, Scott Adams is uh, talking about how awesome Trump is. Basically, it's hidden, but he's basically doing that. And he's getting shadow banned by Twitter. Who knows if he's being blocked on Facebook? Um, I think Scott Adams is an idiot uh, on this topic. And I think what he's doing is very bad and it's horrible and it makes him a bad person. But 
the idea of him being shadow banned on Twitter because he's supporting Trump, it sickens me, right? So I, I want to hear less about how Facebook is allowing nudity and violence and more about how they're allowing dissenting opinion. All right. Expect a move. Oh, sorry. That's the next section. All right. So in development, experience over five to 10 years matters a lot less than people think it does. So this article, I think it's TechCrunch or maybe, I'm not sure, maybe Beta News, but uh, basically some people are talking about how if you come to an interview and you're like, I have 20 years of experience, it doesn't matter that much. What you should be talking about instead is how much um, how good you are at learning new things. Because a lot of that experience from 15 years back, even 10 years back, it's just not relevant. The only thing that's relevant is how quickly you can adapt. Um, so interesting concept and kind of a tip for, uh, for people who have been in development, especially development, because it changes so rapidly uh, for a long time. So the world is getting better and nobody knows it. Uh, so this is a really cool article kind of looking, um, I don't think it's looking actually at Steven Pinker stuff, but it's very much related. It, it's a full kind of overview of how much better things have gotten civilization wise, human civilization wise, and why people think it keeps getting worse. So the idea is if, if you're talking to people all the time who are like, oh man, Things are just going to hell and, oh, it's the worst and it's the most violence we've ever seen and everyone's at war. Um, it's not really that. It's more like um, we're hearing about it more because of the internet, for one, um, and people are paying attention more. Um, the, the quality of the reporting is going up. Uh, we're allowed to be closer to all of the various issues that are happening. We could see video. Um, so we're getting a magnification and this is just sort of my theory, right? not related to the article. I'm sure the article will probably support it if it talks about it, but we're seeing a magnification of every small incident because of media and internet and tech, right? So if you pay attention to the negativity, I mean, you could pay attention to the negativity at a, at a hyper level for just your city and be convinced that we're in the middle of world war three, right? So it's all about averages and, and scaling and looking at trends overall. And that's exactly what Steven Pinker has done. And it's what this article talks about. And when you look at those sorts of numbers, it's just insane how much better things are getting. So it, it's the type of thing you need to read if, if uh, one, if you're a parent and you're freaking out because all you see is negativity on the, on the interwebs or television or whatever. Um, but also just if you're, you know, high anxiety or whatever, and you're worried about things, uh, be less worried. There's less war. There's less hunger. There's less violence. There's less crime. It's, it's all kind of getting better as a whole. All right. The rich tend to be less compassionate than the poor. This might be intuitive, but it's interesting to see data on it. So they have a whole bunch of sort of testing where they do like empathy testing or whatever. Um, and I've got an article here that talks about uh, kind of the trade-offs uh, between rich and poor um, empathic responses and does some analysis on it. thought it was kind of interesting to put in the human section. 
All right, next section, ideas, trends, and concepts. Um, disambiguation of security and obscurity. If you've been seeing my Twitter at all, which uh, most of you probably haven't, uh, this guy named Robert Graham, who's this internet pioneer or internet security pioneer, uh, he basically, he wrote Black Eyes, which I was using when I was basically still on internet diapers. Um, he, he's a he's a badass. He's really smart. He's very opinionated. He's usually right about everything. Well, he responded to my security and obscurity post and basically said, this is wrong. This is dumb. People who use this term are just dumb. Uh, and then went on to give a bunch of very flawed examples of how I was wrong in my argument. So I took the time and wrote a fairly long piece describing how he was just completely off base. And I gave a bunch of examples, including <laughs> the entire field of OPSEC, right? This, this is something that actually my buddy Sasha, uh, Jellar, uh, reminded me of. It's like really interesting. Uh, OPSEC is the, the whole idea of hiding your location, hiding your plans, the whole idea of having multiple limos and a motorcade for the president, um, taking different routes to and from a location when you, you are worried that you're going to be a target. These are all OPSEC and they're all security. It's not op obscurity. It's not operational obscurity. It's operational security, right? And the reason, and this is what I broke out in the post, the reason it's security is because you're reducing one side of the risk equation. So risk fundamentally could be broken down to probability, the chances that you will be effectively attacked, and impact, how bad it will be if you are in fact attacked, right? Well, OPSEC, the idea of playing the shell game with multiple helicopters or multiple limos or whatever, the idea of doing that is reducing probability of an effective attack. That is not anything other than security. That is absolutely security. You're reducing probability, which reduces overall risk. It, that's just that's just true. Okay. No one no one kind of disagrees with that. But uh I don't know. He's caught up on the word, I think. I mean, I kind of agree with him in the sense that there's a semantic problem with it in the sense that it has a lot of baggage. There are connotations associated with it, which are associated with uh, encryption and, and hiding the algorithm as opposed to hiding the key. I understand all the history and the drama, which I also break that down in the in the article as well. But bottom line is that if you are reducing your chance of being effectively attacked, whether you're playing shell game with limos or you're moving your SSH port, you are reducing the probability side of the risk equation and you are increasing security. So that's, uh, that's the bottom line there. And I've got the link in, in the notes. So uh, next one, expect a move towards internet resiliency or resilience. I don't know what the right word is to use there, but so check this out. <clears throat> um, we had the internet get melted by a bunch of toasters last week, um, including Dyn. So that was the most important one. It was Dyn. And of course, all these different services use Dyn. So what I'm predicting is that we're about to see companies like Akamai and maybe Cloudflare. I don't know who else would get in this space. Um, maybe Amazon. 
uh, since they're not tied to an operating system or a stack. But <clears throat> um, imagine that you are a website. Let's say you're CNN and you have email and you have, most importantly, your website. And all your ads are on CNN. And if it goes down, you lose money, right? People aren't reading your stories. It's bad for you. Well, someone decides to melt CNN. Let's say they attack the DNS provider for CNN, which of course would also stop people from going to CNN. Well, what you could do is basically modularize every portion of your stack and then do monitoring. So if you notice that DNS is going out, your DNS switches to another provider in another area, another region. If your DNS is fine, but your web server is being melted and there's nothing you could do upstream because it's just too many toasters, right? Um, there's nothing you can do. You know, you have Akamai, you have all this DDoS protection and it's all just completely being melted. Um, you simply move. So you have another version of CNN, like live running. You have like three of these versions and it's live running. It's not actively serving right now, but the monitor sees that it's being melted, sees you can't get requests, boom, swaps over. You're now serving out of whatever, Australia. Um, or five other locations. Maybe it's load balanced and, and you're, you're being rerouted all over the place. The point is, you can't melt one location. You can't melt one DNS provider. You can't take down one web host. You can't take out Linode or DigitalOcean or whoever else is hosting you, Azure, um, and completely stop that service from working because it will just move to another area. So now if you want to melt a service, completely disable it, you know, deny its service, you have to take out not just the one that you hit first, but then you have to go to the next one. And then you have to go to the next one. And now you're moving this massive botnet's traffic to chase probably a faster moving adaptive service, um, adapter, adaptive server service, right? So I, I think this concept of resiliency, it also applies to physical security as well, right? It's all about, and this is something I'm going to be doing talks on in, uh, in 2017. It, it's all about the risk equation. Again, it, it actually comes back to uh, probability and impact. Instead of worrying about prevention, just assume you can't block whatever, 25 million toasters, right? That's just not going to happen. You can't, you don't want to pay for that amount of coverage. It's a lot of toaster coverage. You don't want to pay for that. It's like a million dollars a month or whatever. So you just say, you know what? Maybe maybe that link will get melted and that's fine because I will be okay because I will have this other service. It's the same with say bombings or IEDs or pipe bombs or whatever in the United States in malls. What would happen tomorrow if 10 pipe bombs went off and hurt people or killed people in 10 different malls at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning? The, the country would freak out. ISIS is destroying us. You know, the people would be hesitant to go to malls. They wouldn't send their kids to school. It would be a disruptive event. The idea is we should switch to a, to a, a model where we're reducing impact instead of increasing prevention. We're already at something I called a couple of years ago, peak prevention. 
you can't get any more prevention, right? Uh, it's not quite true in InfoSec yet because we are kind of a soup sandwich in a lot of ways um, in terms of not doing the basics. But there is a point where you can only prevent so much and you will be breached. And if you want to reduce risk, you have to make that breach matter less. So anyway, that's what I think is going to happen from an internet infrastructure standpoint. I think even within the next week or two weeks or three weeks, we're going to start seeing a lot of companies come up and say, hey, host with us or use our service. And if you get taken offline, you will instantly resume within seconds from another location that is not being DDoSed. Um, I think it's just a natural expectation to move towards resilience. All right. Policing cheaters in Counter-Strike Go. So Counter-Strike Go is something I played in college back in early 2000s. Um, Counter-Strike. And now there's Counter-Strike Go, which is evidently still wildly popular. Valve, the company that makes it, has decided to um, outsource not outsource, crowdsource the management of cheaters. So everyone is uh, able to report a cheater. And even based on like your reputation and stuff, they can actually block people and ban people. So you're, it's the concept of, um, this is something I'm going to be writing a massive amount about. It's too big for this point here, but the concept of bottom up versus top down when you have security or policy or regulation or whatever that comes top down, it comes from very few people. It's usually not very good and it takes a lot of time to adapt and evolve. When you give the power to the users and you have multiple million users per month, they police themselves. Um, in this case, they're literally policing themselves because they're the ones who have the knowledge of what's happening on the ground. Um, you enable the people who have shown good karma and good reputation of you know, not banning the wrong people just for competition reasons or whatever. So you give them more sort of karma and more weight. And uh, the system works. Um, evidently, they're having some decent success with controlling cheaters by enabling the users to report on themselves, not in a, you know, Stalin type of way, but more in like a, uh, a village type of way. You know, you don't screw the, the baker when uh, you're a blacksmith because you got to buy bread. All right. Um, next one. P2P lending. This is really cool. This is basically instead of borrowing from, borrowing from and loaning to, like banks, you basically borrow from uh, borrow from and loan to other people. So it's peer to peer. It's just regular people like you and me um, taking out loans from uh, Lending Club is one company that's used, and uh, the returns on this stuff are fantastic. So it's like a lot of people are getting eight percent, thirteen percent. 14%, even I heard it goes up to like 16% or whatever, but um, your loans are actually fragmented and broken up across multiple people. You do have different credit types and different uh, levels and stuff like that, uh, just like you normally would uh, based on the quality of their credit. And that's associated with the returns, of course, and the risk. But um, what's interesting is 
it's uh, it's tied to different things than an overall than a bank's health, right? So a bank might pay you less if X happens or Y happens. Um, you're being paid quite a bit more with these loans that are peer to peer, which also again peer to peer is this bottom up versus top down. So the concept keeps repeating, at least in my mind right now. And uh, what's interesting though is the thing to watch is unemployment. If you have unemployment and you have a lot of people who can't pay their loans, well, now in peer-to-peer lending, you're at more risk. So uh, it's an interesting trade-off. All right. Recommended links. Dan Gear's Black Hat 2014 talk on cybersecurity as real politic. So I think more InfoSec talks need to be people reading essays. And that sounds super dumb. And I got flamed on Twitter for saying it. Um, I I think people need to have ideas and they need to talk about ideas. Now they should write a good essay and they should not be super boring when they're reading it. But if you cannot support a talk by talking about your ideas and you need, you know, lots of humor and you need lots of whatever animations and videos and memes um, and I'm not against any of those things. I, I've I've used them myself, uh, and lots of people use them with good effect. But I think what ends up happening is people leave there and they've been entertained, and they're like, "Oh, wow, that was good. That was a good talk. That was a good conference. I was entertained." But they're not going to really remember the core idea necessarily. Not as much as if you actually have good ideas, and your whole talk is the idea itself. Um, I, I think it is a very high bar and it's a, it's a high standard. Not everyone can be Dan Gear, right? Obviously, but we should be striving towards Dan Gear and not towards the amazing meme deck that makes everyone laugh, right? Because I, I think ideas are, are the core of a talk. If you don't remember the idea leaving and if you don't, if that idea doesn't help you do something better in the future, then how useful was that talk, right? So that's a thought there. Uh, NoSQL data modeling techniques. This is cool. A lot of of people, uh, when they go to build a project, they don't know if they should use relational database or NoSQL. Um, And this is an article that basically talks about how to model for NoSQL deployments. Uh, Pretty cool. Uh, Chaos Monkey has been updated. This is uh, Netflix's awesome concept. Again, a concept of resiliency. Again, a concept of reducing impact. Uh, Very, very cool stuff. Um, uh, Almost said her name. So A-L-E-X-A. Hopefully that doesn't activate her. Um, She can now be used to fact check the U.S. election. Um, So I, I presumably you can ask just like things about Trump and, and uh, Clinton and uh, get answers back. I haven't tried it yet. Um, if I didn't have to go right now, I would try it live, but uh, I need to get to something else. So um, where's Siri in this? I, I don't know where Siri is. Like Siri has just fallen off so bad compared to Alexa. Like it's just very sad. I, they really need, they've done a bunch of AI hires and stuff. And they really need to step up the game or they're going to get left behind by uh, by that girl from Seattle 
and um, Google Assistant, and uh, I guess not Cortana since they don't have a mobile platform. All right, tips, announcements, and miscellaneous. I'm back from a bunch of trips. Um, definitely good to be home. Oh, I continue to work on the format of the show. So I, I keep experimenting with uh, fewer stories, like this one actually had fewer stories, and a little more conversation about each link um, or each story or each topic, as opposed to like 20 different information security stories, but only like one or two sentences. So you get more breadth, but not much content uh, or commentary or analysis. Um, so if you have an opinion on which direction you prefer, um, definitely let me know. Um, hit me up on Twitter or, uh, or email. Oh, uh, final thing. This is episode 50. So woot woot. Thanks for listening. See you next time. All right. Thanks again for listening. And please be sure to go to danielmiesler.com slash newsletter to get a copy of everything we talked about. And if you like the show, please pass it along to your friends. I'll see you next week.